I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Oladimir Jayewalai. Ayo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now, you're an environmental scientist, right? Yes, I am. What does that mean? What kind of environmental science do you do? Yeah, I basically work on plastic pollution research because plastic, it's, uh, it's becoming uh, an issue in the environment. Like, they are found everywhere, even in the building where we live in the open spaces, in the mm-hmm. ocean, and then it, they're actually affecting lives, most especially in the ocean, because there are animals in the ocean that are like cannot differentiate between what to eat and what not to eat, and then they just like keep feeding on plastics alongside their prey, and then it's making impact on them, it's affecting them. So, yeah. The Vancouver Aquarium has an excellent exhibition um, where they have the plastic bag jellyfish. And they've got little plastic bags floating around like jellyfish showing how it's easy for a turtle to mistake them. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I've not been to the Vancouver Aquarium, but then when I was in South Africa and then at Uchaka Marine, they have this like exhibition whereby they, we have plastics in the environment and you see those animals like that you actually expect to pick up the plastics. They use the animal to teach us humans <laughs> to like, no, this is how to manage our waste. When you have a plastic waste, this is how to discard it properly, which is quite fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, in this podcast, we try to meet people at various stages in their career. Um, what level are you at? Oh, I'm a postdoc researcher. Okay. Yeah. And um, what did you do your degrees in? To start with, for my undergrad, I have I did zoology. And then for my master's, I did zoology and major in animal physiology. And then for my PhD, it was more like a new area because for the two degrees, the first and the second, which is graduate and the masters, I actually like deal with animals, like learning about animals and stuff. But then when I started my PhD, it actually brought me into the plastic pollution research. And then, yeah, (laughs) it was... At the onset, it was kind of like difficult. And then, but then I was able to like cope because of the background I had in biology, because I, I had to work like with animals and then with plastics, which actually helped me, though I had some difficulty at the beginning. But then I was able with persistence, like more reading, asking questions, and then like my desire to learn more and to not get stuck because of a challenge actually kept me through and then I was able to overcome the challenge and then I forged ahead. 
that's really interesting. Thank you. It's um, like you took the very theoretical uh, background of, of the science and then uh, for your postdoc degree, you put it into a very practical uh, lens. Um, where do you do your schooling? Here or? Here. Now I'm basically working on with zoo planting. <laughs> So for my story, though, I did zoology and then like I moved from, I remember for my master's, I project, I worked with mouse, the rats, abino. And then for my PhD, I had to work with marine invertebrates, mm-hmm. which became like, it was kind of odd, but they were like bigger invertebrates and they had to like, study their life cycle, their feeding strategies. I had to learn so many things about them because my research involved keeping the animals alive. So I had to <laughs> ensure that every conditions are actually like suitable for them. So that I overcame and coming to Canada, UBC, I had to work with more smaller like let me say tiny <laughs> invertebrates zoo planting <laughs> so at the beginning it was kind of challenging i remember my teacher telling me like okay i'll just go out there collect the animals and just bring them to the lab and they see how long you can keep them just to like experiment with them which actually was helpful because it wasn't the real experiment because my work here was to tells the effect of plastic on those zoo planting. And then it was fun. Like I enjoy actually going to the field. I don't, whether good or bad, I don't care. I have like, okay, target to me. This is what I want to do. So I usually like to put in all my efforts in whatever I'm doing. So I was able to bring college zoo planting, brought them to the to the departments and then wash them. I've, I fed them, change the water, make notes, make made observations and stuff like that. And then that actually helped me. So I had to say all of this because at one stage, from one point to the other, it's like, okay, I'm not actually like sticking I'm to one particular thing. It's like, okay, you have done this. I want to move to the next day. Then I had to digress a little bit and learn something new, sometimes methods and stuff like that. But then I'm enjoying what I'm doing. <laughs> and I like it. Good. Yeah. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Yeah. Uh, where did you go to school before coming here to UBC? For my undergrad and my master's degree, I did them in, in Nigeria. I'm a Nigerian. So for my PhD, I moved to South Africa for my PhD. So, yeah. So my undergrad, I did in a state university. And then my second degree, second degree master's, I did in a federal university. <laughs> and then, yeah, after I finished my master's, I was like, okay, for PhD. No, I'm going outside of the country. I want, like, I want a change of environment. Mm -hmm. And then I just believe that I will be able to get more in terms of research, like mentorship, and then more facility that we, 
like improve my research and stuff like that. So it was my decision. So I had the opportunity to continue, like to proceed with to my PhD. Immediately I finished my master's. I was like, they were actually giving me, like they gave me an admission, but then I just said no. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I hope you you enjoy your decision. I, yes, yes. I had no regrets. <laughs> Vancouver is quite the departure from some of those other communities, but especially today, um, for the people who are listening, there is snow on the ground, but I hope that doesn't scare you off. <laughs> no, no, I, I won't say like, it's, it's, I think it's all about me. Like if I want to do something like, um, kind of like ready, like prepared, I remember the time I called the position as a postdoc with Maite, I had to like, that was when I started reading about Vancouver though. Like BC, Vancouver, I started reading. Actually, I've been in Canada at some point for in the um, Newfoundland. To I was there for a couple of months just to do like plastic research as well. But then that was when I read, when I got the appointment, I started reading about Vancouver because I actually want to like get prepared like emotionally I don't want to get it and then get disappointed and that could actually impart on my research output so I was prepared so I'm good with Vancouver (laughs) excellent yeah you mentioned you're doing um, microplastic research yes would you care to elaborate I actually, my major focus is on the effect. There are so many aspects to plastic pollution research. Mm. Some people study the transports of like transports of plastic, maybe from land to the ocean. Some people study the behavior, how they behave in the environment. But mine is basically how it affects lives in the ocean. Okay, excellent. And in your research, have you made any discoveries that you'd care to share? Either uh, something that you learned and really uh, stuck with you or something that's new to the community of science? Yeah, I think with plastic pollution, what I've come to realize is there is a dose response. Like the more plastic or microplastics we have in the environment, the more their lives in the ocean, we have access to them. And then the more of the microplastic they ingest. So like practically from my lab experiment, it proved that, that if we have like 10 and then we have like two microplastics, those that lives in the environment where we have like 10 pieces of microplastic, we have access more and then we encounter microplastics more than those in the lower concentration. And then for my PhD research, I did something with temperature as well because of the global warming. And then I saw a response like, because they are actually like invertebrates, those smaller organisms, they are very sensitive to temperature. And then with increase, a little increase in temperature makes them to like, it actually triggers like, increase in their metabolic activities and then especially it makes them to want to feed more and then making them to ingest more microplastics in the environment. 
So I think those are the two key findings that I've made. I'm still, I'm, I, there are a lot of research to be done and I'm still like hoping to do more and more and to contribute <laughs> to the body of science. Excellent. Yeah, I remember a few years ago we had that heat dome and it was so hot that they say billions of, of invertebrates uh, on our coast just boiled to death uh, in the oceans. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 kind of, it's very sad. Let me say, I remember during my PhD, I had an experience because I had to vary the temperature. Though so we have like, the temperature here is not as high as in the temperate region, let's say in South Africa, because I actually work with higher temperature. And then I went from, let's say, from winter to to summer, you know, the temperature varied. Then I had to use a temperature to just predict the near, like, possible temperature we might have in the environment. I remember collecting, going to the field, like, collecting sea squats to bring them to the temperature room, control temperature room, to experiment with. I had to, like, leave them in that condition without like experimenting with them just to acclimate to the environment. It was so funny. Like I got there after two days, they were all dead. Wow. They were all dead. It's, it was very, very like, it was shocking for me. I was not expecting them to die. Though like, even if they are, we record like mortality, I wasn't expecting all. I was thinking they'll be able to cope. So I just used that to tell us like lives, especially smaller organisms, the invertebrates in, in the environment, they are very, very sensitive because the temperature in the environment actually like they, it's, that's what they depend on to like regulate. They are not like mammals that could actually like generate heat from maybe activities, performing maybe swimming and stuff like that, that could actually like cushion the effect of the external temperature. But for the smaller organisms like invertebrates they don't have to absorb like increase temperature and then it may lead to death and then it may actually cause some maybe let's say cellular response and other response i didn't investigate that i didn't do that but then from my experience it could be that bad yeah that's very telling thank you um and scary too. Yeah, it is. <laughs> or on a happier note, field stories. One of my favorite parts of these interviews has been hearing people's field stories. Um, I've never worked in the field myself. Apparently, it's this amazing place where things that are probably very frustrating to you happen, but they're very entertaining for me. <laughs> <laughs> I see. <laughs> Do you have any fun field stories you'd care to share? A story I have during my PhD was, you know, as a students you have like you have made your setup like tanks ready everything ready for the experiment to start and then I had to like work with the weather because I was sampling from the rocky shores and then if I had to go when the tide is like very very low to be able to get my samples and then I had to drive like about two hours from the university to my location. And then 
let me say 95, 98% of my time, I go, I went alone. Let me say, I had like, I didn't want to wait for people to start fitting me into their schedule. And most times could be like so disappointing how we get there and the entire rocky show is covered with water. And then I had to like just come back to the university without being able to do any sampling. And for such experiment, I would have put in like, it's not a weak setup. Filter, water, collect sea water, add them filter, put them in the tanks, ensure that the temperature is cool, ensure that I made the concentration of plastics to put like everything. And then I would just come and it be like nothing, no sample. So, and sometimes it's, I make, I to go when it's, rainy windy like not even looking out for the like considering the weather conditions so that's it and then here the very past story i will say i experienced was a time where we had to conduct an experiment in vancouver island spamfield to be specific and then you know, because I I was the only zoo planting person that had to like go to the shanes to collect zoo planting with planktonates and then bring them, make sure they are okay, and then add them to the bags. And then there was a day, the weather wasn't good. It was like raining, cold. But then because we were actually working with time, I just had to go. I had like a couple of other students assigned to go with me on the boat. And then funny enough, we collected zoo planting and then, you know, we brought them to the to the dog to start applying in in just in less than an hour, 80% of them died. Wow. So <laughs> So it was, it was very, very bad. It was like a terrible like day for me, you know, putting in so much effort to get them. And then sometimes we might go having the mind to just do like maybe two, three nettles and we may end up doing like six or eight because we were not getting enough of them because like after I opened the and and then just looking at yeah I'll be able to like have like an idea or estimate of how many of the zoo planting I actually have there and there it was very very fast so I remember myself and my taste started to brainstorm okay what could have gone wrong is that the temperature change salinity change which had which made me to conduct another side experiment to try to look into what actually caused those zoo planting to die after collection. <laughs> so, yeah. And remind me, what are zooplankton? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Zooplantings, they are, shall I say, small organism that actually connect the primary periodiza phytoplankton to the to the higher organism in the food chain. 
They're like they are grazers, some are predators. They just prey on those tiny phytoplanktons, mm-hmm. and then many lives in the ocean actually depends on them, on the zooplankton. They depend on zooplankton for their survival, like feeding on them and stuff like that. Yeah, they are very, very important in the ecosystem. They are many people don't know about them, but they they are super important in the ecosystem. Excellent. Thanks. <laughs> By the way, uh, I'm I'm always curious when people do work in or field work in other countries and then um, come to Vancouver or BC. Uh, do you notice any major? Differences in field work uh, in Nigeria and, and South Africa versus BC. I wouldn't say for my for Nigeria. I didn't do field any field. Let me just say major field work. Mm-hmm. But in South Africa, I did. I won't say I've not seen any difference because it's like okay, get out there. You know where you are going, your location. You know what and what to take along to keep those animals alive. Because mm-hmm. mine is not to just collect and then not take proper care of the animals. It could actually impart on my research. So I have to ensure that I have everything that we keep the animals in a good environment, like condition for the kind of experiment I want to do. So I won't, there's no major difference, no, nothing. The only thing is just the weather. Yes. <laughs> like now it's no, I remember last year, December and January, I had to go to the Strait of Georgia to collect zoo planting, you know, it was freezing cold. <laughs> but then it's, that's, that's the only difference. Yeah. Great. Yes, I can imagine when you're doing your work, you're just uh, telling yourself, please don't die, please don't die. Because <laughs> if they die, there's nothing for you to study. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't say like, I just, for me, I like going to the field. Because like, it's just bring for my undergrad, I learned so much about like animals in the environment because I did zoology. One fantastic thing is that I learn more when I go to the field, like because I'm now able to observe those animals, especially the time I was picking at the rocky shores, sometimes in the middle of like picking my animals, I just see another that I have to like take maybe like a couple of minutes to just watch how they'll response out of behave in the environment which i actually found very very interesting for me so going to the field i don't see it as a problem always exciting <laughs> excellent well yeah. you've got the right attitude for it <laughs> yeah <laughs> thank you i'm curious um why why do this what's the um why should the world care about uh zooplankton Okay, the world should, the, they shouldn't care only for zoo planting. I think the main idea behind our research, we just speak like, let me say particular, because when we work with plastic pollution, you have to like choose your model animals and then you have to provide justification why you actually select such animal as your mother animal. So I want to say the world should not only care for zoo planting, but be very 
like they should care for lives in the environment, be it the tiniest that you won't have to like use the microscope to like see and to the biggest like whales, we should all care for them because that we all depends on our environment. We depend the lives in the ocean. We can't just separate ourselves from the environment. And what I've come to realize is we are the product of what we make the environment to be. Some things that we do, some of our actions in the environment, you know, like, oh, it's not coming back to, like, people might think like, okay, take for example, this is plastic, I've used it, and then I dumped any out. And then you just believe like, no, it's not a problem for you because it's not actually, it's out there. But somehow it's actually like coming back to us because now microplastics have been found in seafood, even in the salt that we eat, like cooking salt, Mm. in the water we drink. They are just like everywhere. So they are actually coming back to us. So I see like we depend so much on our environment and then we should always have the attitude to create a cleaner and as the environment that is safe for everyone, not only for us, but for the lives in the oceans as well. It all comes down to we eat something that has eaten something that has eaten something that has eaten zooplankton, which has eaten microplastics. And yes, so- yes. For the zooplankton, you know, there are small, another animal feed on zooplankton, another animal prey on the one that, and then it's just like coming up. And because they are very, very, in terms of population, there are many in the environment. So if one soup planting should take one microplastic and one predator feed on 100 zoo planting, you can imagine how much microplastic does predator we have and another we feed on that and then it goes just up, up, up to the the major, like, let's say, like, fishes that we consume and stuff like that. Perfect. Perfectly put. By the way, do you have any idea, on average, how much microplastic we have in our bodies? Or does does anyone know that? No, I I would say no, that I have no idea. Because now the, the field of Plastic pollution research have now evolved, like many professionals, even people in medicine, like they are now trying to like investigate. They are trying to investigate how microplastic could affect human beings, like and stuff like that. But I won't be able to say one thing about human is it's kind of difficult to <laughs> nobody wants to be a subject yes. <laughs> of research. So it's it's difficult to say like okay this is how much microplastic we have in our body (laughs) it's difficult (laughs) yeah so i won't be able to yeah when you say to someone like you've got a lego brick (laughs) worth of (laughs) microplastic in you uh, then they start to take notice yeah i know they have found microplastics in years back uh they found in like humans too Many it has actually human ingested and then passed through. And then I there was this no, it wasn't done on human, it was done on rats. Because most time if you want to like try to mimic human, we call with like mammals, like mouse and stuff like that to see. 
And then the the presenter actually found out that it actually affects like testes. He did some histological histological studies and then found out that it actually like affects like structures and stuff like that. And to my own experience is that if it can affect rat, then it can do the same for humans. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, how small are these microplastics? Okay, Mike. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> so it has to be defined. Plastic smaller than five millimeter in diameter. Yeah, they are microplastics. And then we have the nano, nanoplastic. But then for nano classification, I think there is no like standardized, let me say, size for that. Mm-hmm. But Microplastic generally are classified like okay, any microplastic that is smaller than five millimeter in diameter is considered as microplastic. That's pretty big. <laughs> I was imagining it as nanoplastics, as you said. Yeah, the nano they are like super tiny. Even microplastic that's five millimeter in diameter, you know, is like the biggest. But then we have like in terms of size range found in the environment, you have more of the smaller sizes of microplastics, not as big as close to five millimeter in the environment. So many of them you have to like look like under the microscope. That is when one will be able to pick, especially when it even comes to like fibers mm-hmm. and fibers are generated from clothing, from laundry and stuff like that. Yeah, I was shocked to um, learn that our laundry is uh, contributing to this problem. Yeah, it's really, really contributing because we generate, we usually generate like more of microfibers when we do laundry. Um, I work in collaboration with the OceanWise as well. So I usually follow their like Twitter or like messages on social media. So recently uh, based on their research they found out that even washing with cold reduced the f- the fibers that we should using during our laundry i've been washing with cold water just because i'm afraid of setting stains but um i will say that it's for the environment too yeah <laughs> i you love your work and that's very obvious but what's the best part the best part in this work is like after the entire experiment and then starts to make sense out of the data that we generate, it can be like frustrating, like working the entire, let me say, weeks and months. And then after the entire change, one is unable to make sense out of the data. (laughs) And then... You know, sometimes when you based on literature and stuff like that, and then based on experience, you just imagine like, okay, if this experiment is done this way, what we have like expectation, like for the result, result might be this way. And sometimes it could be the other way around. And then you have to start brainstorming what have gone wrong during the experiment, start to like look into the procedure and then try to see, and then if you are unable to point out anything that could have made the result to be like that, then 
when we start to look for, okay, start to think within like what could have caused it, it might be. But the best part is like seeing like, like results or findings that could actually influence government decisions, policy makers, like when it comes to like matters related to the environment. So that's the best part. <laughs> it's really um, rewarding to know that you've actually had an impact yeah. um, and that you are having an impact. Thank you. <laughs> now, I think I know the answer to this next question, but um, it's the opposite of the last question. <laughs> What's the worst or the most challenging part of your work? The most challenging, it's like... When I go out there to collect those animals, it's they becomes like a baby to me that I have to like make them their okay, like work helped, like so that is the most challenging part. Cause you know, sometimes I before I leave the department, I have to just go look through and be sure that everything now. <laughs> 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 They are doing well. And then in the morning, you know, I'm at home and I'm still thinking about, oh, I just hope everything goes with this. And you know, I was like, and first thing when I get to the department is just to quickly look, go back to where I'm running the experiment to just see that thing. So it's very, very challenging. And then even when I'm not there, my mind is actually <laughs> in the experiment I'm running. So it's very, very challenging until I actually conclude the experiment i don't think i have like major worry and anything aside that oh i just hoped everything is fine. <laughs> the experiment goes well <laughs> yeah it is very much like you're a, a parent of millions of little babies yeah yeah <laughs> and you just hope that enough of them survive yeah yeah oh i'm curious uh do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities and if so has that affected your studies or your career I would say, uh, yeah, being represented, I'm a black, <laughs> Nigeria, <Yep. laughs> from my skin, you can tell, and maybe from my, like, intonation and stuff like that. But then, yeah, I would say we are underrepresented here, but then I can't see any connection between that and the work I do, so it has no impact on what uh, the work I'm doing and then my relationship with people in the department, even outside the department, it has no impact. Wonderful. I'm yeah. glad that you've yeah. had that experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you find that environmental science is an open and welcoming field or is it more closed off and insular or, or a bit of both? No, it's very, very open. It's Wonderful. very, very open. Like it's, I would say it's, yeah, I stick with it's very open because it's just involved like, okay, if you have the mind that you want to do it, you are most welcome to do it because you have like fun, even if there are aspects that you are not like familiar with, there's always room to learn new things. Nobody knows it all. So one thing is just the mindset like, okay, I'm ready to learn and I want to do it. So it's very open, it's not a close. And anyone, I mean anyone, 
can actually do it. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I find that with um, younger fields um, like environmental science and interdisciplinary fields, uh, they often have a spirit of collaboration um, and openness and, and welcoming. Yeah, yeah. For the plastic pollution, like there are some things I remember even here as I'm working, we are collaborating with another professor in chemistry because it's like all because I'm now into going into more of toxicology that involves like some metals and stuff like that. So it's it's let me say it's all encompassing, but then you can actually have people like to get in touch with even if you are stuck at some point like people that know okay the better way to do it just going on like even just within UBC we have the UBC microplastic clusters that you have diff people from different disciplines that are participating in microplastic research so it's all encompassing and it's very very open that's great. Yeah. I didn't know there was a microplastic uh, cluster here at UBC. And we, when we say cluster, we should clarify uh, a cluster of researchers, not a, a giant ball of microplastics somewhere on yeah, campus. Yeah, cluster of researchers. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah. Sometimes academic jargon is double-sided. Uh, double yeah, I know. <laughs> One thing we've all had to deal with the past few years has been the pandemic. Has it impacted your research in any way? Yeah, for me, I wouldn't say the pandemic actually had any impact on my research. I will explain why. Because I remember the total lockdown was, I think it was in March, March towards the end for South Africa, I was in South Africa towards end of March. And then I actually submitted my PhD thesis in March. So I'd concluded my lab work, like everything. So, so in, I wasn't like planning to go to do any work outside, aside from what I could actually do from anywhere. Like only what I needed was just access to the internet. So which I actually maximized those time. I was able to push out, I think, two chapters from my thesis for publication oh, wow. during the pandemic. Yeah, so I was like, <laughs> so I wouldn't say it's actually impacted on my, <laughs> on my research, yeah. You're one of those people who was actually productive during the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> if anyone's listening to this right now and wants to follow in your footsteps, uh, what background or experience or courses would you recommend they take uh, or follow um, to become the next IO? Okay, I would say biology is necessary. If, if one wants to do, like, there are so many aspects to plastic research, but for my own aspect, which is more of dealing with animals, like life, we're not picking them just to freeze them, you have to keep them alive. You need the knowledge of biology. It's very, very, it's very, very necessary. And then you should be able to keep them alive. You should be able to know what they feed on, what they like, what they don't like and stuff like that. And if one lacks the knowledge or the, that background in biology, it might be quite like challenging or difficult. So basically you get an aquarium. 
kind of. <laughs> and for you, what was the most important course that you took? Yeah, the most important course I took was animal physiology. And this was during my third year undergrad. So, and it's actually like changed like my perspective about, because about, let me say, animals in general. So that was when it got done on me that animals actually respond to their environment. Aside from the basic like biology that we were taught during high school, like animal respond to stimulus and stuff like that. But then the course actually went like deeper and then how they respond to sun, how they respond to changes, how they respond to predators, what triggers their reaction. I find it very, very fascinating. fascinating. And then I was like, oh, I develop interest in that. So it's even the time we were to like, decide on what like aspect, which aspect of zoology we want to do our project. I remember feeling out, okay, I want any project that is related to physiology for my undergrad. And then when I, it was time for me to proceed to my PhD, I actually looked for like courses on physiology, animal physiology. For my PhD, so though I did, it was zoology, but then I now I then I majored in animal physiology. So that course till tomorrow, I keep telling people is actually it's the most important like course I did that actually changed many things about my studies, and then and I'm still building on that. Excellent, now. I can see how that would have um, sent your career off in in this direction. Yeah, thank you. You are a very inspiring scientist, uh, but I'm curious, who inspired you uh, while you were doing your studies? Oh, that's a very tricky question for me. <laughs> <laughs> I know many people like will want to talk about a professor or maybe a tutor. So for me, I was to start with uh, two, my parents how they actually inspired me. They taught me to be like very, very independent. And this is actually necessary when it comes to like research. Mm -hmm. And then they taught me to be hardworking. Like they, they, they believe you can do whatever you want to do. Nothing should be a barrier like saying, oh, Okay, because somebody has done it and it failed, does not mean that if you do it, you will fail. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like impression actually like kept me going. I just, I strongly believe that I can do whatever I want to do. Rightly, not the other way around. Like I can achieve anything. I can do anything. <laughs> so they are number one source of my inspiration and they believe in me like you know my parents are not maybe at any point try to discourage me from like following my dream I remember the time I got admission got admitted into zoology program there people are actually approached even family members approached my parents like why do you want your daughter to study zoology? 
that could another parent would have taken like no you're not going to do that but they didn't so and then I got like, okay, I'm not going to disappoint my parents <laughs> for her life. <laughs> and that helped me. And along the way, my partner was the second person, like when we met, he actually believed in my dream and he has been super supportive. Like even when it's not convenient that I sometimes, because I have kids, I have to leave them maybe to go do some work or whatever. Sometimes I'm like, maybe thinking I'll be able to finish at particular at a particular time. And then it's like, no, two hours, three hours, four hours. I'm still busy with that thing. I'm just like, I'm still in the last. I said, no, don't worry. Take your time. You know, those things like actually helped me to be able to concentrate. Like I had no worry about, oh, no, this person, if I don't do it this way, if I don't, I'm not at this place at this point, there will be a problem or whatever. No, there has been nothing like that. So <laughs> those people are like two sources of my inspiration. However, I actually read about people, like I just speak, okay, I like this aspect and that aspect. That's great. <laughs> Thank <It's>, you. <laughs> um, we don't often celebrate the the people in our lives who uh enable us to do what work we do yeah i for me i actually celebrate them a lot io you are at the beginning of a very exciting career um but i'd like you to look toward the end of it uh what would you like to have as your professional legacy when you eventually retire if you retire <laughs> for my professional legacy i would like to see those generations that are very keen to keep it their environment safe and healthy. My, at this stage, and towards the end of my career, is to do, like, conduct good research that can better inform people, impart people, like, decision, like, how to, like, keep the environment safe for everyone through our action, like daily actions and activities. But then at the end of my career, I want to be able to like close my eyes and said, no, people know how to actually keep their environment safe. That's wonderful. That's Thank a you. very good goal. Thank you. <laughs> and I think you're, you're doing it yeah. right now. Thank you. <laughs> For my final question, um, the world is changing at lightning speed, not just physically, but also how uh, we interact with it and how we process and do science. Uh, the field that a person enters at the beginning of their career can be unrecognizable by the time that they retire. So where do you see environmental science going in the future? And what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of the changes that are coming and get ahead of the curve. I would just say that environmental scientists and people that are coming should just be ready to take up challenges. And the challenges are just to like be able to profile solutions to the problems that have been made even before we were born, and then to be able to look into possible problems 
that might come in later years and be able to like try as much as possible to conduct research to better inform people and to be able to avert if that is possible such problem from happening so we save the future generation from the mess <laughs> yeah yeah one of those uh, the points that you just made um being able to communicate your science is uh, very important and i found is a, a rising uh, trend yeah and you're doing a great job of it. Thank you. Thank you. you. <laughs> Ayo, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Is there anything you want to add before I let you go? Yeah, I just want to, shall I say, commend what you are doing. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very, very interesting. And there's like committing to reaching out to people, like to just hear them sharing their experience. I think it's a very, very good idea because, you know, works are like very, very impactful. Like people listen to what people have done and then they pick interest. Oh, yes, I can do this so we can learn from each other. So I just want to commend you and the entire team <laughs> for doing a great job. <laughs> coming from you that means a lot because you. you inspire me today thank you <laughs> thank you for sharing your passion thank you for sharing your experience thank and you. thank you just for the work that you do thank you so much daniel <laughs> thank you for listening to on earth on earth is hosted by me and produced by myself kirsten hodge our editor sarah robertson and ollie beat designed our logo on Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences here at the University of British Columbia. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca learn podcast or listen in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. And see you next week here on Earth.